0: I pray that the cross would scream today how much they are loved. For those who are running headlong into sin, I pray, God, that you would turn them. Turn them away from destructive ways into your loving arms. Father, make us humble that we can hear from your word and apply it. And most of all, help us see you. If we don't have you, we don't have anything. Everything falls short. We need you desperately, so come. I pray this in Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. So I was reading a news article this week, and here is a screenshot of the article. Exhausting ordeal, woman gets head stuck in tailpipe. I had to read because I wasn't sure, like, is this a figurative tailpipe? No, literally, this woman gets her head stuck in a tailpipe. So then my mind is like, okay, how small is this woman's head? Or how big is this tailpipe, right? Like, oversized, that's, I, don't, I don't quite get everything that's going on here. But I think it would be safe to say we would all agree that was not smart, right? Okay, I think it's safe to say bad idea. Well, then you go on and read the article, and this young woman was also for, uh, yeah, cited, um, got a citation for uh, underage drinking. So we know that partly she was not fully with it as she sought this endeavor. So now we shift to not just being smart, but as the Bible would frame it, not being wise. Now, Father's Day means also that we need to talk about Some wonderful phrases that you never thought you would say as a parent. Shifting gears just a second. As a parent, you find yourself saying things you never thought you would say. Here's a few. I have said, I won't say how recently, I'll just say I've said. Don't shove your sister's face into the cake. Okay? Don't hold your brother underwater. He cannot swim. Don't wear rollerblades while walking up the steps bad idea. Don't throw a basketball at someone's face when they aren't looking. I'm not even sure the last little bit is needed. Just don't throw it at a face. But nonetheless, I find myself saying these statements. Why do I make these statements? These statements are so that my children would get smarter and that they would, you know, be smart not to do certain things, but also to cultivate a heart of what love looks like. That they would love love people around them. And that's biblical wisdom, knowledge that leads to love. We all need wisdom. We've all got decisions to make. What decisions should I make? What career should I pursue? Who should I marry? What should work look like for me? What does it mean to have a friend or to be a friend? What should I say right now in this moment? What is the right business deal? How should I spend my money? Many of these are common to all of us. But biblical wisdom says that the answers to these questions are not just so that life would get easier or that things would be manageable. We don't just need more intelligence. We need to process all of life with God in mind, such as this. Your decisions are not just about you getting ahead or living a safe life. They're about living to please God. Your words are not just your words. They are meant to reflect God. Your money is not your money. It's meant to reflect the generosity and superior worth of God. How you work is not primarily about your career advancement, about your worth or about your company. It's ultimately reflecting that God lives inside your heart. That's why we work. Your friendships are not just about your needs. They are primarily opportunities to put the display of God's love in front of others. Your kids are not centrally about you correcting your past mistakes or having someone to hold. It's about disciple making and raising up the next generation to love Jesus. The book of Proverbs is meant to be a book that drives every part of life to wisdom. It is saying that There is not any crevice of your life that is segmented away from God whatsoever. Every part of your life is meant to be upward. God is meant to be treasured. Now, it was the book of Proverbs that was extremely important to the New Testament authors. It was the book of Proverbs that Paul used when writing about humility and unity. He turned there in Romans chapter 12. Mark Dever tells us that when Peter sought to address conceit and dissension and foolish living, he went to Proverbs in 1 Peter 5. When James wanted to talk about pride in James chapter 4 verse 6, he went to the book of Proverbs. When the author of Hebrews wanted to encourage Christians in their suffering... In Hebrews chapter 12, he went to the book of Proverbs. And when Jesus built parables in Matthew chapter 7 and in Luke 14, upon building on a sandy foundation or building on a firm foundation, having a foolish versus a wise life, he went to the Proverbs to craft these parables. These these pages that we are getting ready to dive into in the book of Proverbs, they're important. They're important for living, for encouragement. But why us? Why TCC? Why now? Well, not only did we just finish 18 weeks in a New Testament book, and we've only been six weeks in an Old Testament book, so we want to do another Old Testament book. I think there's something else about the season of our church. In our church right now, we're seeking in 2018 to hone in on what does it mean to be and to make followers of Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 28, he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Go, therefore, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do what? Obey all that Jesus commands. The Proverbs, as we will see, is meant to help us understand the foundation for the commands of Jesus, and even the content of the commands of Jesus we're meant to see the commands of Christ on these pages so that we become disciples who we obey Christ many times we can talk about obedience as a means of legalism well I'm obeying to earn yes you obey to earn God's favor that's not how it works You are accepted by simple faith alone. But all of a sudden, we have taken a legalistic religious culture and we have made obedience a bad word. And yet the Scriptures say obedience is necessary for life. It's necessary for your joy. It is necessary to give the appropriate glory and honor and respect to God Himself. Many of us are miserable because we've made obedience a bad word and optional. And so Jesus says no. No. You are saved by faith alone, but obedience is not optional. We are meant to be in a community of faith where we teach one another to obey everything that Jesus commands, and I'm saying the book of Proverbs helps us. It helps us know the foundation, and it helps us know the content of what Jesus summarized all of his commands, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. So that's why we're in the book of Proverbs. After we finish this for eight weeks, then we'll dive in in the fall to the book of Galatians. But for right now, we are in the book of Proverbs together as a church. So let's look at cha- uh, Proverbs chapter 1, and let's do just a little bit more intro here. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David and king of Israel. So right now you have this book attributed to the sayings, the Proverbs of a man named Solomon. Solomon was the son of King David, and Solomon in the the Bible is known for one thing. Does anybody know what it was? Wisdom. And then he's also known for running his life off a cliff and being a train wreck. But that's a different part of his story, okay? So at first, he was wise. And that's where in his wisdom, we get the book of Proverbs. The train wreck version of his life, we get his meditations book of Ecclesiastes, And we see him beginning to run away from God as his anchor. But here in the book of Proverbs, we have the the Proverbs, the wise sayings of Solomon. Now Solomon had thousands of these Proverbs. And we just have a few hundred here in this book. So although some of these statements are from Solomon, we also begin to see as you read through the book of Proverbs, that not everything here is put here by Solomon. Solomon. These are the words of Solomon and yet there's an author outside of this that's kind of bringing it all together and communicating a message. This author, fully inspired by God, this is fully inerrant and infallible. But what we have is him gathering Solomon's statements. And then we see in Proverbs 24, it says... There's a person who is giving us wise sayings, and we don't know if it's Solomon or somebody else. And then we know in Proverbs 25 verse 1, it says that there are some other statements of Solomon that were now copied in the days of Hezekiah, which is way after Solomon died. So we know this book was written way and compiled way after Solomon's death. So what we have now is an author who is pulling all of this together to communicate a message. A message... That is, we need not just knowledge, but we need biblical wisdom, and that begins with the fear of the Lord, and that's where we'll go soon. So Solomon is attributed to a lot of these things, but we have someone who is designing this book so that ultimately we will see, and I'll show it to you later, we will see Jesus as the one that the book of Proverbs points to. Now, also, as you read this, this first verse says, these are the Proverbs of Solomon. Some of us don't know what Proverbs are. Proverbs are short and therefore meant to be memorable, uniquely wise statements that are meant to cultivate a life of wisdom. Short and short so that they would be memorable, uniquely wise statements that have as their purpose cultivating a life of wisdom that is why we've called this series wisdom as a way of life not just a part of life but it's a way of living is to live a wise life and so as you read these proverbs there's some helps that we need because as you look through the book of proverbs you need to understand there's a there's a there's an aim there's a structure and i want you to I kind of get it. So let me, let me lay out the structure for you real quickly of the book of Proverbs. Today we're going to look at the chapter 1, but as you look at the structure, you'll see the first seven verses are what's known as a prologue. The first seven verses are a prologue, and that's kind of an intro of why this book exists. This is where we'll be spending most of our time. It exists so that we would fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But then from verse 8 all the way to chapter 9, it's basically a defense for why wisdom is important. Why we should pursue wisdom. That's verses chapter 1 to 8, all the way through chapter 9. Why wisdom is important. Why we should have wisdom as a way of life. And then something happens. At chapter 10, all the way to chapter 29, you get what seems to be random proverbs. These short, memorable, unique statements that are meant to cultivate wisdom. But if you try to piece them together like in an order, like this verse now connects to this verse somehow, you will make yourself miserable. Because they are not meant to be pieced together as you read through them. They are purposefully random. And this is so that you might have heard some, t- some of the scriptural teachings called the milk of the word versus the meat of the word. I don't know if you've heard that. Milk of the word means that it's, it's something that children can begin to get into the simple things. You can begin to feast on them. And as you grow in God, you need to get, eat the meat of the word. You need to grow deep in God's word. Well, this Tim Keller calls the hard candy of the word. The Proverbs are the hard candy of the word. What do you do with hard candy? You got to put it in and you got to let it sit there for a while. And that's what is meant to happen with each one of these proverbs and why they're not all connected. He didn't put all the ones about your mouth here and all the ones about your family here and all the ones about your kids here. He didn't theme, make them a theme at all. He did it so that you would meditate and dwell on each one and begin to think how it applies to your life. Now, as you that's what happens in Proverbs 10 to 29. And as you begin to read these isolated proverbs, Here are seven quick principles. I won't spend a lot of time here, but seven quick principles that as you read these Proverbs, it might help you in your journey through the Proverbs. I got these from Mark Dever in his book, The Message of the Old Testament. So I adapted these from him. But here we go. Let's dive through them real quickly. As you read through a proverbial statement in chapters 10 and following, here are some common principles that'll help you. Number one common sense is required common sense is required Dever uses this illustration of a common proverb that we use not found in the Bible but that we use today look before you leap if someone says look before you leap it means that you should take caution you should look around you before you jump now if somebody doesn't look before they jump and they jump and they're perfectly fine Without taking caution, does that make that proverb untrue or false? No, it doesn't. Not at all. Proverbs are meant to say that it is a true statement that requires some common sense because it is wise and generally true. More times than not, it is a true statement. It's true of life in general. And so that leads us to a next idea And that is individual proverbs are not exhaustive, but are normally true now. Now that can seem wordy. Let me just walk through it. It's not exhaustive. When you take this statement, look before you leap, that is not meant to be a treatise on jumping, right? It's not telling you how high to jump. It's not telling you how long to look. It's not meant to explain all about jumping to you. That's not its purpose, So it's not exhaustive. These proverbs are not meant to be everything that's ever written about a certain subject. But instead, they are short so that they're memorable so that you can put it in your pocket and you can live life with this general truth. It will protect you. It will guide you. And this leads you to number three. Individual proverbs are ultimately true. There are several proverbs that give you this sense that if you follow god if you walk in righteousness there's this general sense that things will go well for you and that is a general sense of the proverbs however let's look at the life of jesus did he follow god his father fully he sure did where did it wind him up on a cross to die for our sins How many righteous people who followed this Savior ended up also dying a martyr's death? Does that make these proverbs untrue? No, because they're not always true in the here and now, but they are ultimately true in the end. Because is it well for Jesus right now? Raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father. Yes, it is. Is it well for those saints who gave their lives? Ultimately true. Yes, it is. Because they are in the presence of Almighty God proverbs are true, but there is an ultimate fulfillment that doesn't always transfer to the right here in its immediate application. Number four, individual proverbs employ poetic imagery. So here's a proverb. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. Now, you guys are all smart enough to know That your aim, according to this verse, is not to dip your tongue into silver. That's a stupid idea. Sorry, kids. Bad idea. Shouldn't do that, right? That's because we're reading this as poetry. It's a sense of when you say good things, it is valuable like silver. When you tear down, your mouth is proving that your statements are of little worth. So we have to understand some of these things are poetry. Number five, individual proverbs are partial in themselves. So there are several proverbs in the book of Proverbs that are about bribes. There's one proverb that actually almost makes it sound like bribes are okay. And if you take that proverb out and slap it on your refrigerator, be like, okay, it's time to bribe. But if you read the, in all the Proverbs, you begin to see that that was written in, a most, uh, in an almost sarcastic way, in an almost way to kind of mock the fool statement, because the Proverbs show that the bribe is an abhorrent way to deal with your money and your interaction and your transactions. So now you have to say individual Proverbs sometimes are partial. You read them in the whole of the book and it communicates a broader sense or a broader message. Mark Dever talks about it like clipping out coupons. Sometimes we treat the Proverbs that way. We clip out the coupons. We clip out the one verse that we like a lot. We slam it on our fridge and that's how we live, but we don't look at it in light of the whole of the book. And we've got to look at it, individual Proverbs, in light of all that what God says. Number six, individual Proverbs are sometimes obscure. There are many times when you are reading the Proverbs that it's It's just not clear exactly what it is saying. It seems to be a little fuzzy. And I just want to caution you, don't build all of your theology off of these obscure individual verses that are standing out there. You have to make sure that you're reading it once again in light of the book, which leads us to number seven. As a book, the Proverbs are how to live before God. What's that mean? It means that if you just take these individual sayings and you say, I'm trying to be a better person, you've missed the point of the Proverbs. The Proverbs is not just be a better person. It is how do you live wisely before God? How do you live all of life before him to please him, to worship him? So those are some helps. Now, Let me finish the structure. Let me hit rewind just real quickly, and then I'm done with the intro, and we'll uh, spend just a few minutes understanding the purpose. The structure, you have the prologue. You have this defense of why you should pursue wisdom. Then you have the Proverbs that I just talked about. But here, really weirdly, the last two chapters, you got three people that are being addressed. Agur, Lemuel, and the excellent woman. We just finished the book of Ruth, which in the Hebrew Bible follows Proverbs. We know that she was the image of the excellent woman. But now you've got Agur and Lemuel who are in there. And what we have seen is that the author puts them in there to begin to tell us the point of the book. It's basically like a conclusion. And what's remarkable is as you read chapter 30 with Agur, he begins to ask questions. Who is the one that will bring wisdom to us? And the answer? It literally says, if you go and read it, it's the one who is the Son of God. The one who is known as the Word of God is the one who will bring this wisdom to us. And he is forcing the reader to read the book of Proverbs in light of the coming Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. He is forcing us to say, this is the foundation upon which we will worship and follow Jesus. This is the foundation in obeying his commands. So, as we look at this book as a whole, I just want to let you know kind of where we're going as a sermon series. Eight weeks, here's how it'll roll out. Today is intro in Proverbs 1. Next week, we'll look at Proverbs two, and three. And then what we'll do is we'll take what are the general categories of those Proverbs in Proverbs 10 to 29, and we'll summarize them into about six categories. And so we will deal with these categories of your words, your family, humility and pride, work and money, emotions such as happiness and joy and anger and envy, and then friendships and relationships. And then that last one will also end it up um, as the book ends, pointing each one of them, but pointing specifically to Jesus. So look forward to where we're headed, but let's dive into Proverbs chapter 1. Longest introduction in the history of introductions, just kidding. But we need to make sure we know where we're going. And now let's look, chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. Verse 2, why is this book written? It says to know wisdom and instruction to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing and righteousness and justice and equity. These two verses tell us that the Proverbs are coming to us so that we would get some knowledge, some understanding, but that that understanding would actually lead to a loving life, a life of wisdom. Now, It would also lead to a life of righteousness, right living, and advocacy for those who are finding themselves in injustice. These are all written so that we would live a life of love with the knowledge that we have and therefore live a life of wisdom. Who's it addressed to? Look at verses 4 and 5. To give prudence to the simple. Who are the simple? The simple are those who need to grow in their knowledge. They they don't have a lot of life experience. You see that with the next phrase. Um, To give prudence to the simple knowledge and discretion to the youth. There's this sense where young in life means you need to get some more wisdom, some more knowledge. But who else is it addressed to? Verse 5. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. The one who understands obtain guidance. So it's also written to the wise that they would hear and increase in learning. Here's the summary. Why is this book here? Because every single person needs this one thing. The humility of teachability. It's amazing how older individuals will be tempted to look down upon youth. They're so young, they don't have life experience, and so they've just got so much to grow in. And guess what? Some of that's true. And then you can imagine the young look down, they just don't know the times, they just don't know the culture, they just don't know how life should go, and you think you know everything when you're young. Well, you don't know everything, but some of those statements about an older generation, they can be true as well. But here's what the Proverbs are calling out. The Proverbs are calling out for us not to live foolish lives of self-sufficiency, but to be teachable. The young are meant to ask questions, to learn, to seek guidance from others. The older ones are meant to learn and seek guidance and counsel from others. You never expire from learning. Until you're dead. And then you actually you'll learn forever. So we have to be careful. Whether you're young or whether you're old, the admonishment is for everyone to place themselves always as a learner. And how many times is it tempting when someone gives you advice to kind of buck up, kind of get a little defensive? This is the contrast between humility and pride. We need to be learners. We need to be teachable. Now, look at verse 7. Because this is the summary of verses 1 to 6. This is the purpose of the entire book summarized in a verse. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So knowledge is the growing and understanding that leads to a life that's fully submitted to God. That's a life of wisdom. So they both work here. The fear of the Lord is where knowledge and wisdom begin. He's the origin of it all. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. And now what happens? happens is verses 8 through 19 explain this fools despise wisdom and instruction in verses 20 all the way through the end of the chapter begin to point you to following the fear of the Lord and walking in wisdom. So look at verse 8 with me. Because the fear of the Lord first begins by walking away from foolishness. This is this is the main idea. We have to walk in the fear of the Lord. That means we walk away from foolishness. And here you see how it happens. Verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. An image that runs throughout the Proverbs is this parent-child dynamic. Listen to your parents. Now, we all know there are varying degrees of wisdom found in varying degrees of parents. I get that. But here it is again, a general rule that it is wise for children to listen to either life experience, especially if you have godly parents, to listen to their walk with Jesus and to place yourself as a learner. Now, I have these kind of instructions at very holy places like the Waffle House or Krispy Kreme. I know that those places are known for their great health and their gluten-free menus. But those places are where we find ourselves. That was a joke, kids. Sorry. Uh, some of you might not follow that. It's not true. It's, it's not gluten-free there. Um, and it's probably not very healthy, but boy, is good. So when we land at the Waffle House, it is an opportunity. It is an opportunity for me to get one kid, a couple of kids, and just to sit there and to say, how are you? What's going on in your life? We do this as we go all the time. But it is special to take a special time, make a memory, get away, and to just look them in the eye and say, I care about you. I want to know what your hurts are. I want to know what your joys are. I care about you. But it's also an opportunity to do this right here. An opportunity to warn and to caution. If you remind them of your love and of the love of God for them, then the warning is couched with, I don't want you to walk in ways of foolishness. I don't want you to go this way because it is hurting your life. You're hurting others. Please hear your Father's instruction because ultimately, I'm trying to reflect Jesus. So whether these conversations or at a Waffle House or Krispy Kreme. Pick your favorite spot in your mind. That's what we're doing when we sit down. This is our Waffle House moment. This is a time when God as our Father begins to speak into us and admonish us to not walk in the path of foolishness, but to walk away from foolishness. Where do I get it? Look at some of the things that are said. Verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, don't give in to their path verse 11. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. And then all of a sudden it goes to all of these horrible things, verses 11 through 18, that these people are doing to try to get ahead, to try to hurt others so that they look better. And then it's summarized in verse 19. Verse 19 says the summary of verses 11 through 18. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy For unjust gain, it takes away the life of its possessors. Greedy for unjust gain. What does that mean? It means you are using others' weaknesses against them to better yourself. I'll say it again. You're preying upon others' weaknesses to get ahead yourself. The clear context is, well, I'm going to make things harder on them so that I can succeed financially. You know, you want to keep this person in their place so that you can continue to climb the ladder, get the money, etc. That's unjust gain according to verse 19 of chapter 1. But as I began to think about it, It applies in a lot of different ways. When you, begin to use your weak, when you begin to use your power and your position to prey on the weaknesses of others. As a father of teenagers, I see it all the time in the school system. In friend-peer relationships, where those who have seemed to have some type of access into popularity or into acceptance begin to put down someone else, in order that they might get what they're greedy for, which is, you know, security from friends, the approval of others to get popularity and notoriety, whatever it is, it is the bully system. It is casting them down, making fun of them in order to lift yourself up. It's greedy for unjust gain. And he says, don't have anything to do with it. And so teenagers, sometimes it's hard to not participate in those things, But the Proverbs would begin to say, if you constantly participate in those things, it will make you like the very person you do not like. Where do I get that? Look at verse 19. It says, such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. So the person who is craving power and acceptance and notoriety and position, if they go after that at the expense of the weak people, it actually begins to disintegrate their life and ruin their life. You do not want to be a part of ruined lives. You want to be a grace to help ruined lives, but you don't want to have a ruined life. So it's saying, and hear this, the reason it regularly pushes on younger individuals is because the temptation can be teenagers. It can be that you know everything. The scripture says, no, you have to be teachable. You've got to learn. But remember, that applies to those who are wise as well, who are older in years. You too have to listen. And so... Greedy for unjust gain is what you want to avoid. You want to walk away from that kind of foolishness. But now verse 20 begins to lay out the way of wisdom. Because fear of the Lord is walking away from foolishness. Look at what wisdom does. Verse 20. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market she raises her voice. Now this is kind of weird. Wisdom starts talking. It's almost like you're watching Chronicles of Narnia and Aslan starts, you know, the lion starts speaking. This is what happens. Wisdom begins to get a voice and starts talking. And what does wisdom say when wisdom is in the streets? Raises her voice and it says in verse 21, at the head of the noisy streets, she cries out at the entrance of the city gate. She speaks, how long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? There's a phrase. How long, those of you who think living in your own way, rejecting God's way and trying to craft your own story and your own narrative apart from him, how long will you persist in this? How long will you make other people's opinions of you most important? How long will you pursue after money and power and success and fame as the satisfaction of your soul? How long will you do that? Do not live this simple life. This foolish life. Verse 22, how long will scoffers delight in their scoffing? How long will people just delight in making fun of others to build themselves up? And wisdom says, if you turn at my reproof, behold, verse 23, I will pour out my spirit within you. Because in the whole of the book, it's pointing to Jesus. We know ultimately, it is this declaration of hearing wisdom is trusting in Christ and following Him with your life. When you do that, the Spirit of God comes in your heart. And you're a new person. But friends, what we have found is that In the scriptures, the fool, the fool is one who rejects God. Now, many of us do foolish things. You can look at some of the things I've done and say, that was just foolish. Why did you do that? There's a difference. When you run away from God... With your life, in your, if you remember all the things we're going to go over, in your words, in your family, in your relationships. If you run away from God in all of those ways, you'll be called a fool. What we want to be is one who is filled with wisdom. Romans chapter 3, verses 18, describes this fool, and it says this There is no fear of God before their eyes. So if you get this, the wise fear the Lord, the fool has no fear of God before their eyes. So what is your choice? Psalms chapter one says this, happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. The foolish life will run around with foolish ways of talking and foolish ways of thinking. However, wisdom is cultivated in spending time with God and His Word. I was talking with a friend this week, and he made a statement which I felt was really helpful. When it comes to this idea of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, I've said that it's walking away from foolishness. It is. It is hating sinful things. But he has he said a phrase that it was helpful, and he said that what we need in our Christian worlds is a revival of gravity. That God has become something that is He is really casual. It is entertain me. It is we reduce Him to keep me free from bad things. And help me enjoy the things of the world like the world enjoys them. so many people in the church as a whole, not necessarily TCC, but so many people have just become casual about God. Not standing in awe of His amazing power and might. I was reading this week in the news, and in Florida... There were these two uh, nuclear cooling towers that were imploded. And so, what you have, and we couldn't show the video because of some copyright issues, but what you have is a bunch of people standing far away from these towers, and then you begin to hear the countdown, and as it counts down, you begin to see this. All of a sudden, 1,600 pounds of dynamite begins to ignite around the bottom of these things, and they just begin to crumble these massive nuclear cooling towers, and then all of a sudden all that's left is just a bunch of smoke. And as it gets to that point, what happens is on the video, you hear a group of people going, Woo! That's amazing! You know, just cheering and loud and crazy. And they're doing that because power that is controlled is exciting and enticing. But there wasn't anybody cheering like that at 9-11. Why? Because that power, that might of crushed buildings, you could not control it. And the aftermath could not be stopped with the snap of a finger. And no one felt safe. There's this sense that yes, God is okay if we can manage Him. But I want you to know God is bigger than what we can control. And if He's bigger than that, we stand in awe of His might. We fear the Lord. We fear Him. What is interesting though, is as His greatness is put before us, those who are running away from God, they're in fear in terror. But those who have trusted in Christ, this uncontrollable fear is couched in the language of C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia when he says, is the lion Aslan, is he quite safe? And the person that is answering the question says, whoever said he was safe? He's not safe, of course not, but he's good. And the follower of God knows that although his might is uncontrollable by us, it uniquely draws us in. The fear of other things, you fear bridges, you stay away from bridges. You fear snakes, you stay away from snakes. You fear spiders, you stay away from those. You fear the Lord, it uniquely draws you in because although not safe, he's good. Although you can't control him, you love him. And that's a mystery of God's amazing love. St. Augustine, African bishop in the 300s, he made some statements in his autobiography, The Confession, and he says these, look at these words. This is meant to evoke awe in your heart. God is most beautiful and most strong. Stable, yet not from being supported by others. He's stable, but he doesn't need somebody else to hold him up. He's unchangeable, yet he changes all things. He's new, but never old. Making all things new, yet bringing old age upon the proud, and they don't even know it. Always working, yet ever at rest. He gathers, but he doesn't need anything. He sustains and pervades. He is diffused in all of life. He is a protector He creates, he nourishes, he develops, he seeks, and yet he possesses everything. Oh God, you owe men nothing, yet pay out to them as if in debt to your creatures. And when you cancel debts, you lose nothing. There is no other person, no other relationship, no other pursuit that cares or compares to him. If you have God, you have everything you need. This is the awe of God's greatness. And yes, we do need a revival of gravity that draws us deep, but we also need, and I end with this, a revival of intimacy. Because some of you, you believe God is big, but you don't believe he wants anything to do with you. You don't believe you're good enough to walk into his presence. You don't believe that because you messed up this week that he wants to be near to you, And yet the cross says the exact opposite, not because of what you could do, but because of the love of God for you. He sent his son to die the death that you deserved. He raised him from the dead so that you would be convinced he loves you and he has the power to change you. We need not only a revival of gravity that we stand in awe of God and start treating sin as abhorrent and start, start running away from foolishness, but we need to run into his arms. On a Father's Day, there is no greater fatherly message than the God of the universe who should not be near to you, who should be totally away, pursues you, and is here with you. Dear friends, you are loved. But here's the deal. How in the world will we grow to be wise and to know the love of God for us? I want to put forward this for you. Let's take an ocean, for example. If you've never seen an ocean, and I begin to do this, the ocean's amazing you can stand on the edge of this ocean and the waters kind of come at you and they lap up on your feet and sometimes you can stand in it and you feel like you're stronger than the waves and then the next moment, those waves get so high, you feel crazy small and it has so much power, you feel like you've got to run away from it and then you stand on the edge and you look out at it and it's vast and endless and you can't see the end of it and you're like, wow, that's pretty cool, good for you and then you move on. But if you ever stand and you dip your feet in the ocean, and you look out at that vast array and you stand in the power of those waves, all of a sudden those words become 3D. They become a story you own. They become all that you possess. Friends, here's what happens. We have deduced our spiritual growth to right here, right now. And although I believe with all my might that God uses his words in these moments to uniquely grip us and change us in this moment right here, primarily the bulk of change happens not right here, but when you go home and you pick this up and you sit before him and you say, I want to dip my feet in the waters that they were dipping their feet in. It does not happen primarily in Bible study in a group, although God moves in power in that. It's when you yourself take away from that study, I've got to be in God's Word. And when I ask people, and we have done such a good job at times of trying to alleviate legalism, and I say, do we need to read the Bible daily? I will get many times... No, I don't have to do that because I'm already accepted in Jesus. And that is completely true. You don't have to read to earn favor before God. However, do I need to read the Bible daily? Yes, to know the love of God for you. In trying to avoid legalism, we've missed the feast that is before us day after day. When George Mueller says, every morning I wake up to read his word so that I can make my soul happy in God. That's perfect. (laughs) And so, I ask you, do you know the love of God for you today? I pray that there is a revival of gravity so that you will hate sin and run away from foolishness. But there's a revival of intimacy that you will run into his arms And know how much he loves you. That's what the book of Proverbs wants us to do. Dive in. Meditate. Live in the fear of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. For caring for us. And I just pray. I pray that the result of our time together would be that we would delight ourselves in your word we would feast upon your word that you would change us and make us your children father if we are your children we need to fear not condemnation for the cross solves that but if we have our trust in you we fear not walking with you we fear not experiencing your nearness and intimacy we fear not finding the joy that comes from living a holy life we fear not pleasing you we walk in the fear of the lord and so we run away from foolishness and we want to stand in awe stand in awe that you would be near to us and stand in awe that you love us father please For those who need to run away from sin, don't let them go this morning. May the resounding sound be, I want all of my life to be yours. I want to walk in wisdom. I don't want to be hard-hearted anymore. I don't want to act like I know it all. I don't want to segment parts of my life to just me. I want you, oh God, to take all of me. Force your way into my heart, oh God. Grip me. Some of you who aren't convinced that he loves you, I just invite you that these words are written so that you would know the love of God for you. The cross was to convince you that you are loved and to display the perfect righteousness of our great God. Run to him today. When we take up this Lord's Supper, there's two tables in the front and one in the back. If you're a follower of Jesus, we just invite you. We invite you over these next song or so that God, you would, you would just allow us, oh God, to know you, to share our hearts with you. Some in this room need to talk to each other and pray for each other or confess to each other. But whatever it is, I pray, oh God, you would take this Lord's Supper time and you would change us and you would give us the fear of the Lord. If you're not a follower of Jesus in this room, don't take of the supper. It's saying that you love Christ and you want to follow him. But this time is for you. You can call out to him and ask him to change you on the spot. Confess that you have walked in your own ways. Confess your sin. Ask him to cleanse you, to change you from the inside out. Don't try to fix yourself up. You'll never be able to do it on your own. Call out to him in faith. Ask him to change you by the blood of Jesus and he will work on you from the inside out and make you new. Use this time for that, but wherever you find yourself, ask God to give you wisdom, fear of the Lord, love for him and for others. Let's enjoy this time together.